left, right, left, right, left, march, left, right, left, right, left, right, left, march, 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 march. Good morning, everybody. I'm Tim Lawson. I'm back from the episode of Fuel for Warriors. That's right. I'm bringing it back. I mean, I guess, you know, it was Technic Robin Williams thing uh, in Good Morning Vietnam, but, you know, that uh, that opening just felt so right for me in the beginning of my podcasting career, and I sort of let go of it, and, you know, I feel like doing it again, because, you know, I do what I want. This is Fuel for Warriors, a podcast that features military veterans, athletes, and other people that resonate with the idea of being a warrior, and I talk to them about how they how they apply the warrior ethos to their lives, what challenges they face, and what ultimately inspires them. This week, I have a Coast Guard veteran on the show. He's a friend of mine. His name is Christopher Evanson. And what's unique about this is in all of my podcasting, through all of my uh, veteran-focused programming, whether it's the One Too Many Veteran Suicide Project or Veteran Empire, Fuel for Warriors, whatever it may be, I'm yet to talk to a Coast Guard veteran. So, I decided what a better time than to bring Chris onto this show and talk about how the warrior culture fits into the Coast Guard because I think that when we think warriors, as far as the military is concerned, we think of Marines, Army, you know, infantry, grunts, whatever have you, ground troops, you know, in the thick of it. But I think the warrior mentality still transcends the branches. So I brought Chris on to talk about that. We'll get a quick word from Carl Churchill, and we'll roll into that interview. Thanks for taking the time to listen. Enjoy. Hey, Warriors. This is Carl Churchill, co-founder and chief coffee officer of Lock and Load Java. Thanks for taking the time to listen to our friend and fellow veteran, Tim Lawson, as he interviews risk-takers who've embraced the warrior ethos. I know you'll love our guest today. And when you're finished with the episode, head over to LockandLoadJava.com and use the coupon code Fuel for Warriors to receive a 10% discount on our premium coffee and cocoa. Stay motivated, my friends, and keep challenging yourself. All right, Warriors, I am here with a good friend of mine, a Coast Guard veteran, Christopher Evanson. Chris, thank you so much for joining me. Uh, Thank you. It's wonderful to be here. So, Chris, the reason why I brought you on the show is I, I, I often ask my guests about the warrior mentality, like what it means to be a warrior, what it means to them if they feel like they're living out that uh, living out that character. And the more I ask people, the more I realize that when I think warriors mostly associated with infantry grunts and then, you know, uh, naturally Marines and, and army and, you know, the other branches probably don't get recognized with it. Um, as much, and then of course the Coast Guard is often like the fifth and forgotten branch, right? Uh, and so I, I was, I'm interested to hear your perspective on the warrior mentality, the just the, the term itself, really, and how the how that fits into the culture of the Coast Guard. Is it there? Do you guys do you guys feel uh, like do you feel the same way that I guess other service members do uh, in in their culture? Go ahead and answer any of those questions, and I'm sure we'll, we'll, we'll lead into a good conversation here. Well, certainly. Well, to begin with, I just want to thank you, Tim, for all that you do, and thank you for having me on. Um, I'm a big fan of your work, and I think you uh, are an excellent voice for the veteran community. And uh, Thank you. So thanks for having me. 
So the term warrior, I think when we think of warrior, I think we think of all the war films we watched growing up as kids. We think of 300. We think of the Spartan mystique. Um, it's a very uh, machismo kind of construct, right? And I think in contemporary terms, when we think of uh, the wars of the last 10, 15 years, we think of our special forces operators. I think when you think of a warrior, per se, it tends to specifically reference those people downrange that um, are doing the, the principal operations of, of fighting wars. As for me, though, I tend to think of it from a different perspective. I look at it more from a contrarian perspective. I think of a warrior, and I associate what a warrior is, is um, with that of being a professional, being a true practitioner of your chosen profession. And what I mean by that is, whether you're a food service specialist on the on the, on a cutter out at sea, whether you're the supply clerk, whether you're the yeoman who who handles, you know, the the day-to-day -day administrative duties, making sure people are paid on the first and the fifteenth, um, or whether you're a frontline leader in any type of environment, uh, I think being a warrior means being true to the craft that you have chosen and trying to be the very best professional at your job that you possibly can be. And that means caring for your people. That means following up on your responsibilities to make sure that you are learned, prepared, and willing to train others. Um, and recognizing that if the entire military is a big wheel, each individual is simply one spoke. And no one spoke is more important than the other, but yet that wheel can't turn without each spoke in unison. And so I think a warrior mentality, and this could be applied not just to the military, this could be applied at home for parents and, and professionals in any um, organization or profession of the world, that if you are committed to being the very best at what you can and you do it um, with dignity, uh, you do it um, with a commitment to excellence, to me that's what a warrior is, is someone who wakes up every day, puts their feet, to put their shoes on, walks out the door and says to myself, today, I'm going to do the very best I can. I'm going to be the very best that I can be. And I'm going to be committed uh, to contributing to society. And so from that perspective, that's how I view uh, the term warrior. So how, uh, so then tell me how that applied uh, in your, into your service. Like, was that, uh, do you feel like those ideas were uh, embraced in the Coast Guard? I do. I, 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 it was kind of our mentality. You know, we have a, our, our core values were honor, respect, devotion, and duty. And every service has their own set of core values, but it was instilled in us within the U.S. Coast Guard that if we approached everything we did with honor, respect, devotion, to duty, um, doing everything we could to have proficiency in our practice or, or our craft, um, we would be the very best potential warriors, if you will, uh, for our institution. Um, but it's an interesting question because I've been on the college campus for the last three years and I, you know, oftentimes I am the token Coast Guard member in a room. You know, we are the smallest organization. Uh, one of the things we used to tell people during you know, many of our, our public meetings is the U.S. Coast Guard is smaller than the police and fire departments in New York City. Yet we have over 95,000 miles of, of American territory and interests around the world that we, we help protect and um, we've been doing this since 1790. Uh, but oftentimes the Coast Guard, because of the way war narratives tend to be spoken, we are t often 
either relegated or often forgotten about in, in kind of the greater narrative. And so being on a college campus, you know, you're around a lot of former Marines, you're around a lot of Marine veterans, excuse me, Army types. And, uh, you know, the, the conversation that tends to happen, you know, is about experiences downrange. You know, I was in a firefight in this place or I was in, uh, in, a, in, a, in a convoy that was attacked by an IED in this place. And oftentimes it could be intimidating coming to this conversation because you might have a feeling of inferiority because maybe you don't have something to add. Or maybe you're going to be looked as soft because you chose not to join the Army or the Marine or an infantry unit. You know, you chose to join the Coast Guard. But what I have always looked at was as this was a perfect textbook opportunity to educate. And this was an opportunity for me to share the unique mission, the multi-mission service that the United States Coast Guard is engaged in on a daily basis. Whether it's search and rescue missions, counter-narcotics missions alien migration issues, environmental protection, uh, dealing with living marine resources, you know, fisheries, for example, up in the Northeast, uh, which are so vital to our economic stability in this country. Um, It's an opportunity for me to say, listen, the Coast Guard has a very valuable mission. and We contribute to the greater cause, which is the United States of America and our national security, just like you guys did downrange. And it's important to have a full understanding of the diversity of institutions and how everyone fits into that rule. And so I think it's a mistake if people, and this goes back to the earlier point about what is it to be a warrior. If you pigeonhole the de- definition of a warrior, that means you're, you're, you're removing about 80 to 90% of the military from being in that position. And it's only a select few that can say, quote unquote, I am a warrior. And I fundamentally object that. I think we all serve a valuable role, a vital role, but we do it in different ways, shapes, or form. And again, you can't, and that's why I don't believe there is a definition of what a warrior is per se. Um, so I, I, I tend to apply that with the way you conduct your business, uh, your professionalism, and your commitment to excellence. So I've talked to hundreds of veterans with, in all of my shows, right? I've done, I've done so much programming around veterans and, and spoken to so many of them. You would act, you're actually the first person from that, that's you're the first Coast Guard veteran is that Coast Guard veteran is that right is that, is that appropriate sure uh, that I've had on on any of my shows and I've never really gotten a chance to ask someone why the Coast Guard and how do you like did you did you approach military service already having the intentions of or already already with interest in the Coast Guard, or is it something that developed as you looked into a possible military career? It's a it's a great question. So I joined. Uh, I literally went to boot camp about two months after the 9/11 terrorist attacks back in 2001, and this was an interesting time. Anybody that tries to join the military now, there's a good probability that you walk into the recruiter's office, you say, "I'm willing and able to serve my nation." You fill out paperwork, you know, you go through all the physicals and, and other, you know, uh, pre-evaluation protocols that we have to go through before we join the, the military. And there's a good probability you're not going to boot camp for about a year uh, just because of uh, the reality that many services are streamlining and they're, they're slimming down and whatnot. When I, went to boot, or when I went to the recruiter's office, I went in like October of 2001. Uh, literally about a month after the 9-11 terrorist attacks, and I said I was interested in joining. And I was actually offered a spot in a boot camp two weeks later. Um, 
if I wanted to go. By the time I signed the paperwork, it was about a, a little over a month. So the speed with which I joined happened really quick. Now, to answer your other question, um, I kind of did a cost-benefit analysis. You know, there's five armed services, and when I decided I wanted to serve, I kind of honestly asked myself, I'm like, which service fits my personality and the things that I want to accomplish? And um, I kind of looked at all the services, and I gave them all kind of an equal um, equal uh, glance. And, uh, you know, growing up in California, growing up near the sea, um, the Coast Guard just really intrigued me. I was intrigued by the fact that it was a smaller service. I was intrigued by the fact that they had a unique mission set. Um, and I was intrigued by the fact that in a smaller service, I could probably have a greater opportunity to lead greater opportunity to have a lot of different responsibilities that maybe would not be available to somebody in my same situation in the Navy when you're on a ship that has about 3,000 people, such as a big aircraft carrier. Um, and it just seemed like the right fit. And so um, once I decided that the Coast Guard was the entity that I wanted to pursue, um, it, it just seemed really right. And uh, that's how I kind of went forward. So when people say support the troops or when people talk about, uh, you know, whatever veteran uh, activity or, you know, like, let's do good things with veterans. Do you feel does that resonate with you? Do you feel like, yeah, they're talking about me, too? They're talking about me and, and my brothers uh, and sisters here in the Coast Guard? It's a great question. And to be honest with you, there's been many times throughout the last 14 years of my life, the, the last 14 years I've been affiliated with the U.S. Coast Guard. and Many times throughout that period, I would feel awkward when somebody would say, thank you for your service. And it, it, was, a, it was a Veterans Day, and people were offering me free food at, say, the local Applebee's or whatnot. Um, I always felt awkward because I felt, and I think a lot of veterans feel this way, regardless of the service that you're in, that you're simply doing your job. You know, I'm grateful for the service that each and every day that our teachers do in our, in our school systems throughout this country. And in some cases, they may have a harder job uh, than, than some veterans. Um, I'm also thankful for the service of the men and women in our police and fire departments nationwide who put their lives on the line and do some really, really difficult things on a daily basis in order to ensure that we have safety and security in our, in our communities. And so I always felt that as a veteran, um, I didn't see that it was necessary to put me on a pedestal simply because I signed the dotted line and I went to boot camp and I picked a particular rating and I was serving. Um, and then to be also honest with you, my job, I was a public affairs specialist. My job was to tell the Coast Guard story. My job was to be a liaison to the media. My job was to be uh, the voice of our operators, those men and women putting their lives on the line on a daily basis that were forward deployed downrange. And so there was times when I felt awkward to be associated with the, with some of the people that were actually doing some really intense operations in some cases where people were not coming back. Um, and I felt that maybe sometimes I had not earned it or earned that right. But once I kind of got over the fact and I started to think more about it, you know, that's how I came to this kind of whole of, of service approach is the fact that, only a small percentage of the military are actually like special forces operators or people that are really doing some intense operations. The greater piece of the military is all in a support capacity. 
And that's where I was. My job was to support the men and women of the U.S. Coast Guard. My job was to support the men and women of all the services in the joint operations that I participated in. And I think that's how my mind frame started to kind of finally accept the service that I did. And I think that our men and women who serve on a daily basis have to respect the fact that each of us produce a vital role to the nation. We serve our fellow men and women. Um, but we have to be content with what we do and, um, and take pride in that. But to answer, you know, but the, to finally answer your question though, it's, you know, I, oftentimes I feel awkward or maybe not necessarily awkward, but just a little kind of, um, disconnected from the idea, disconnected from the idea. That's a good way of putting it. I just felt shy or bashful. You know, I, I'm simply a professional doing my job and, um, if you went up to a carpenter, a man who, or a woman who builds homes and provides solid foundation for families for, for decades to come, and if people every day were camped out of a construction site saying, thank you for what you do, or people were doing that at a police station or a school, I think those people too would feel somewhat bashful. They're simply doing something they're passionate about and they're doing their job, and they don't focus on what you can get out of it. They're focused on working at a craft that they want to do and being the very best at it. And so I hope that answered that question. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, a couple, a couple more questions uh, to get insight from, you know, the, the Coast Guard uh, specifically compared to maybe other branches. You know, how has your, how has your, your service influenced your current life? Well, that's a great question. So the unique thing about the U.S. Coast Guard is we are multi-mission oriented across a multitude of unique, diverse mission sets. Uh, humanitarian relief operations tends to be one of our uh, bread and butter operational uh, concepts. You know, so when a hurricane, a natural disaster, such as the Haitian earthquake in 2010, or a hurricane uh, in the Caribbean basin wipes out an island nation or a community, the Coast Guard are often the first people going in while most of the people are evacuating coming out because, you know, we're there to set up, you know, a command and control operation to ensure that the maritime domain is safe and secure. Uh, we are there to provide our unique capabilities in, in regards to search and rescue and other operations to uh, and environmental protection to deploy to a region that's been ravaged by by an act of God. And so my own personal experience um, you know, I, I had the chance to, to deploy to Port-au-Prince, Haiti, just a few days after the earthquake. And the Coast Guard is always working in conjunction with other institutions and other agencies, the State Department, local law enforcement, other governments. Um, and so I got to see firsthand uh, the professionals, for example, in the U.S. State Department and other institutions in, 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 in my duties uh, when I was deployed to, say, Port-au-Prince, or I was deployed to other areas where we were responding to a hurricane. And I was really just in awe of the professionalism and some of the missions of those other agencies, specifically the U.S. Department of State. And so in 2010, after I had a chance to, to work directly with foreign service officers and and people of that uh, that sort, I was like, you know, I think the State Department thing would be something I would be very passionate about in a career after the Coast Guard. And so I started to do a lot of research uh, on the missions of the U.S. State Department. I was doing a lot of research on where they were deployed, 
how one gets into the organization. And so when I made a decision to separate from active duty in 2012, um, I started to do things that would position myself for a potential opportunity to, to serve within that department at a later date. I applied to American University School of International Service, one of the top 10 programs in our nation for international relations. I was fortunate enough to get in. Um, and since 2012, I've been studying there, learning about the world, learning about the diversity of, of foreign policy objectives and how to employ foreign policy. Um, I acquired an internship at the Department of State. I had a chance to travel to other countries, Kenya and Korea, to study. Um, and starting uh, in the next few months, I just recently found out that I, uh, I cracked the, uh, the code, and I'm actually going to be hired at the U.S. Department of State as a civil servant. It's wonderful. And so uh, the, the great thing about the Coast Guard is the fact that we are so diverse and we are so... In, in, integrated with other services and institutions, you get an opportunity to really observe the whole of government approach uh, from an early stage. And I was blessed and fortunate enough to see that. And it started to give me a perspective of how or where else I could potentially fit in a career after the Coast Guard. And I'll add to that, too. The one thing I don't think the military does well for our, our servicemen and women is we don't really prepare our people well for life after after the military. You know, the, mis the mission always comes first. We plan for the mission. Um, and oftentimes we neglect or maybe not truly, truly pay enough attention to uh, what we will do post-military. And, um, and so when I made the decision to get out, I started to look at these other opportunities, and that's how I kind of ended up with So with that... So you, you you mentioned that you don't think the military does a great job on um, preparing its service members for life after the military. Do you, so when you hear the media, when you hear your peers, when you hear your colleagues talk about the struggles that they've had transitioning from You're the military. You're breaking up for a second. Can you say that again? Uh, yeah. So you know you mentioned that you you recognize that the that the military doesn't do a great job of transitioning its service members from military to civilian life, that, there, that there's not enough preparation there. So when you hear your peers, your colleagues, the media, whatnot, talk about transitional issues that veterans have, do you resonate with that, or do you feel like the Coast Guard did a good job of, of setting you up? Well, I, I look at it, for, it's a two-edged, it's a double-edged sword in my mind. Um, do I think that the military can do a better job of preparing their men and women for the next phase of their life uh, after hanging up the uniform for one last time, the answer is an unequivocal yes. Um, you know, for example, we send our, our folks to a, it's called TAPS. It's a transitional course uh, as someone is on their way out where they're taught how to craft a resume and they're given tips of how to dress appropriately for a job interview. It's a very baseline, fundamental, basic kind of class. And that's a pretty, that you know, and we could do a lot more than that. Um, however, uh, the member, the military member, has to take a better job of being more accountable. And I think one of the frustrating pieces on my end is, and this is a general approach, and this does not reflect on every member who's ever left, but I think some people leave the military a little bit entitled, thinking that people should do things for them for the sake of having worn the uniform. 
Sure. And I will say, I would say this to any man or woman getting out of service. I will say, no one will ever care about your life and your career more than you. So from the second that you start to plan the process of getting out, you have to take ownership. You have to own your future. And you have to do your fair amount of research. If you want to go to college, you have to identify, hey, what schools do I need to go to? Um, what is the cost of tuition? Are they a school that participates in the Yellow Ribbon Program? If, in the case, if they are a private institution, for example, would it be a burden to the family to move or move myself to that location if I wanted to go to school? If I wanted to pursue a career path in a, in a different pr profession, you know, you have to do your own research. You have to go out there and network. Um, and if you are one of those individuals who have sacrificed so much of, of your time in the military where you departed the military with a, with a lifelong disability, um, you know, the Veterans Affairs Department, in my estimation, has done a very good job of providing the resources to take care of our wounded warriors and to ensure that they have a seamless transition as much as possible uh, for our veterans. Um, so I think it's a double-edged sword. I think the military veteran has to take accountability for their, his or her own life um, and own it from day one. And, um, I think, and, I, and I think our militaries can do a better job of helping our folks transition. I don't think they do a terrible job. I just think they could do a better job. Sure. Um, but that's how I've always looked at it. And, um, you know, American University, uh, my school has been an incredible supporter of, of veterans in terms of the benefits they provide, in terms of everything they provide to the veteran community. They offer counseling. They've given us a space to work and, and kind of relax during the day in the, in, in, in the terms of a, of a veteran's lounge. Uh, they've provided us opportunities to integrate in various groups on campus. And our footprint on campus has, has expanded massively. Um, I also see this in institutions. You know, the State Department and other government institutions have programs that provide a pathway for veterans to integrate and potentially get a career um, with these organizations, sometimes through internships first. Uh, but there's a lot of institutions, a lot of programs out there that help. I think the biggest challenge, though, is the communications piece, is does each veteran know exactly where to go to find the information? I'm a big proponent of the idea that you don't have to know everything in life. You don't have to be a know-it-all. The true person of power, though, knows where the information is. And I fear sometimes our veterans don't necessarily have the access or understanding of where exactly they need to go to solve some of their questions um, or kind of start uh, from scratch. And I think we could do a better job of that. Yeah, uh, yeah, I absolutely agree. So let's uh, the, the last couple questions of, of sure. every show. Uh, the first is uh, about challenges you face. What, what's what's one or two challenges that you see? Uh, coming up maybe routinely every week or just sort of a, a daily thing you have to address, and, and how are you addressing it? You know, I think the challenges that I face personally is, um, you know, I, I have a lot of baggage in the sense that, and that not, baggage isn't code for problems or, or <laughs> bad things, um, but I have a wife and I, and I have a beautiful three-year-old daughter, and um, you know, so you're always worrying about, we're always worrying about, you know, the day-to-day -day struggles of finances. You know, we live in one of the highest cost of living communities in America, if not the highest cost of living, which is the Washington DC metropolitan area. 
And so we're constantly worrying about, you know, the day-to-day life trivialities, you know, will our rent be paid on time? We have a little bit of debt. How can we get out of there? You know, paying the bills, you know, making sure that the food's on the table. We're in a position now where we're worried about our daughter uh, falling behind academically, and we're like, we got to get her into some type of free school. Issues that affect every family, not just the military um, individuals. But the reason why that's challenging is the military has such a good um, institutional framework that provides daycare, provides 100% medical coverage, um, where those family issues or those quality of life issues are often taken care of because you always have a place to live. You have BAH, you have a medical center close by, um, stuff that you never really have to worry about. But once you get back into the civilian world and you're integrating back into society, now you're responsible for every facet of that. You you don't have a yeoman or an administrative officer that you could call straight up and say, hey, I need this or I need that. Um, And so you're back out there kind of on your own. And so um, just that, I think, is probably just the biggest challenge is just the daily life issues that we all deal with. and, And we work very hard to try to mitigate that and try to find solutions and we're really blessed, and you know, my wife's a full-time physician assistant, and she's been the bedrock of our family for the last couple of years. And um, I'm fortunate enough to have the opportunity to work for the Department of State uh, in the next few months uh, on a full-time basis, and and we're really, really blessed. But I think the challenges um, are just the day-to-day struggles that everyone has to face. Yeah, absolutely. So finally. What's uh what is inspiring you? What what ultimately inspires you to to get through these challenges and to put your ve- best foot forward each day? What inspires me about being a, an American is how amazing or how big the a family can change its fortunes in just one generation. You know, I I grew up in a very dysfunctional household. I went to 17 schools, kindergarten through 12th grade, my senior year of high school. Um, my parents had a lot of struggles. My parents suffered from substance abuse. Um, my father, you know, had a lot of challenges with, with finances and, you know, he was an under the table carpenter, which means he worked for, for cash and cash only. And as soon as a job dried up or money dried up, we had to go to the next town. And so we had a very dysfunctional, just unstable childhood. And I didn't know if I was going to have, when I was younger, a, a positive future. My wife, on the other hand, she's a second-generation Korean-American. She was born here in the States. Her parents immigrated from South Korea in the late 70s at a time when South Korea was not the economic powerhouse that it is today. It was under a dictatorship. It was a very unstable country in terms of uh, a future outlook. And uh, her parents moved here in the late 70s, and like most immigrant families, became small business owners, became bedrocks of their stalwarts of their community. Um, her father never graduated high school. My father never graduated high school. He was expelled his sophomore year of high school, never went back. And just one generation removed from that, my wife has a master's degree and she's a, a certified physician assistant. And in about two weeks time, I'll be collecting a diploma at American university. And our daughter has two parents now that are college educated. And that's what inspires me. That's what gives me hope is that as long as you wake up every day, and you want to work hard, you really believe that the future can be better. I really believe in this thing called the American dream. I think because of some of the political discourse we have, people are frustrated and people have become very cynical. 
but I try to avoid that because I have a lot to be thankful for. I was blessed to wear the uniform of the United States uh, for over 10 years. I'm blessed to be married to a wonderful woman. I'm blessed to have a healthy and beautiful daughter. And I'm blessed to have the opportunity to get my education. And that's what inspires me. What inspires me is tomorrow because tomorrow is like a blank canvas. You never know what the future holds. But somebody said half of battle in life is showing up. And as long as you show up and you put your left foot forward, great things are always possible. And that's what inspires me. And I just, I try to maintain um, that attitude in everything that I do. I try to be the best at everything I can, I can do. Because I know what it's like to be on the other side of that fence. And I know what it's like to have struggles. And I know what it's like to look a father and a mother and I who, who feel that their future is, is nothing because they've made so many mistakes and they feel guilty and they feel that they are prohibited from doing the things that they maybe wanted to do when they were younger. Um, I'm thankful that I have a lot of opportunity. I'm thankful that my daughter has enormous potential now because you know statistics prove that when you grow up in a family that has two educated parents, your life and outlook, historically, statistically speaking, is going to be greater than those who are unfortunately, say, in a single-parent home in other economic um, depressed communities. And so that's what inspires me is the fact that I have opportunity. I have choice. And, um, and as long as I'm willing to work hard and, and just put my left foot forward and just propel and, and help raise my family, uh, great things are going to come. And that's what really just motivates me. Wonderful. That's a fantastic ask- answer, Chris. Well, thank you. Yeah, you are clearly a PAO. <laughs> <laughs> You're a bit, and and I I say that partly jokingly and and, and partly serious because you mentioned that be, part of being a PAO was delivering the message and the story of the Coast Guard. And I think in just in the past two or three questions, you've done that about your own life and your own inspirations. And I think uh, I think a lot of people appreciated that. Well, thank you. Uh, it takes a village, right? And uh, yeah. Exactly. And Chris, thank you so much for joining me, man. No, Tim, it's an absolute honor to be here. And uh, like I said earlier, you, I have great respect for the work that you do and the causes you raise, whether it's for suicide prevention or the voice and the platform or the canvas that you enable others to have. Um, the fact that you're so willing to share the stories of others, um, I, you know, that deserves a lot of credit. And so thank you for what you do. Thank you. I really appreciate that. I'm Timothy Lawson. On behalf of Carl, Lori, and the rest of us here at Lock and Load Java, you've been listening to myself and Christopher Evanson. We'll left, see you next week. Right, left, right, left, right, left, marching. Left, right, left, right, left, right, left, marching, marching.